Uh, well, uh, I'd ask that you grab a copy of the scriptures and turn to Galatians chapter 3. Uh, we'll be in verses 15 through 29. And our sermon this morning is entitled, Law versus Promise. And we arrive at a passage that is often, often misunderstood and misapplied. There have been debates for centuries regarding what the purpose of the law is and how the promises of God are practically applied to our lives. Well, Paul, in our passage this morning, he addresses both of these. My aim today is to convince us of Paul's theme for the entire letter of Galatians, which is, Jesus is enough. But more specifically, in our passage, Jesus is enough because His law teaches and His promise restores. We're about halfway through our letter, and I hope our series has been an encouragement to your soul. I know personally it's been impacting to me. Uh, it's amazing just how relevant the letter of Galatians has been to my own life, to our church, and to the Brainerd Lakes community. However, we are at that point in the letter where we can lose focus of what Paul is trying to accomplish. So if you'll allow me, uh, here's a quick summary of where we've been. In Acts 13, Paul and his guy, Barnabas, they're in the southern Galatian region on a missionary journey. They proclaim the gospel, or as your kids would say it, they spit straight fire. That's how kids say it. They preach Jesus. And anyone who believes in this Jesus is freed. They're freed from the law. They're granted forgiveness of sin and new life with a new heart. Well, these Gentiles, these non-Jews, they hear this message and they rejoice that they too can become the people of God. Well, some time passes and Paul, he catches wind that these Galatian churches are straying from the message of freeness. They're adding to the gospel. They're turning the good news into, yes, faith in Jesus plus obedience to the Old Testament law. So, Paul writes this letter that we've been going through. And the letter basically says this so far. Hey fam, did you forget that Jesus is enough? He died to save you from the present evil age. And he died not just to save you, but to change you. Trust me, I didn't get this message from man. The disciples didn't give it to me. It was revealed to me from Jesus. You think you're right from God, right with God because of your works? You think you can change yourself and change the world by your human hands? Even the Old Testament teaches that the righteous live by faith. Well, that's a summary of where we've been. And the natural question that comes after that is this. Are the law and the promises of God, are they pitted against each other? Well, Paul helps address this by talking about the law versus promise. Let's look together and ask this first question of our text. What? What is the purpose of the law? 
Now, throughout church history, faithful followers of Christ have understood there to be three functions to the law throughout Scripture. And I'll put them on the screen here. There are three functions. The first function is that the law is used as a mirror. A mirror for the person made in God's image to look at God's word, to look at the law and see the reality of their sin and their need for a savior. That's the first function. The second function is the law is used as a restraint, a restraint for sin. The law can't change our hearts, but God does give commands and laws to limit, to limit our rebellion. It's like, uh, you know, I can't change my kid's heart. But I put a law on them. I say, listen, you can only have this many cookies because I have to restrain you from the sugar high and the rebellion that will come after 12 cookies. So I put a law on them. And that's how the law of God is used as a restraint. Third, the law is used as a guide, a guide for faithful followers in Christ. Like Paul, we love God's law, not because it justifies us before God or that it changes us, but rather because the law reveals God's character. It reveals God's moral calling on our life. In our passage, Paul focuses his attention on the first and the second function. The law as a mirror and a restraint. Now, there are multiple functions, but in our passage, what is Paul communicating? Well, first, he's communicating why the law? The law reveals sin. The law reveals sin. Would you read with me, please, verses 19 through 21? Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. We'll address the verses in the beginning of our passage here in a moment. But we see in these verses that many were wondering, why have the law at all? If right standing... With God is by faith. If our being changed and being perfected as Christians is done by faith through, through the Spirit, well, why have the law? Well, there's two items in these verses I'd like to point out to us. First, look at the language at the end of verse 19 and 20, this word intermediary. The, the word literally means a person who acts as a link or an in-between for two parties. And throughout the scriptures, there's two parties, God and his people. So who's the intermediary? Well, according to Paul, God gave his people the law and it was put in place by angels. That might read a little strange because the intermediary you and I might think of immediately is Moses. Moses was the intermediary. He spoke to God on behalf of the people of Israel. Moses brought the law to the people. And that's certainly the case as you read Exodus and Deuteronomy. Moses is constantly acting as the in-between. 
However, in the New Testament, you come to Dr. Luke. And Dr. Luke wrote the book of Acts. And in Acts 7, he tells us on two occasions that Moses was speaking to an angel on the mountain, and the angel gave him the oracles of God, the law that Israel was commanded to follow. So that explains how the law was received from God through angels and Moses. But our question still remains, why the law? Look again at the beginning of verse 19. Paul says it pretty plainly. It was added because of transgressions. You might think that Paul would say the law was added because of sin. The idea of transgression is tied up in the idea of a metaphoric going over the line, breaching the code book. It's not simply that you did wrong. No, it's you've gone outside of the idea of, the line of, the morals of God's law. You've transgressed. This is really the second function of the law. Why was the law brought in? It was brought in because people were going beyond the limits of God's morals. Their rebellion had to be strained. Let me give you a great example of this. Speed limits. In 1974, I had to Google this. In 1974, there was an adopted national speed limit of 55 miles per hour in every state. And all of you are going, that's crazy. That's way too slow. Well, that was the limit that was put on. Why was that speed limit put in place in 1974? I'll tell you. Transgressions. It was put in because of transgressions. Punk teenagers, impatient dads, and lead-foot grandmas. They were going beyond the bounds of safety. Yes, grandmas, we know about you. So, actually, what's really interesting is, once the national speed limit was put in place, the fatality rate dramatically decreased because there was a law, there was a limit, there was a restraint, a restraint on all the crazy drivers, well, at least some of them. Since then, Congress gave back the regulation of speed limit back to the states, but there's still, there's still a speed limit, right? The speed limit was added to restrain sin and a lack of safety. In the same way, why the law? Why the Old Testament law? It was added because of transgression, a going beyond God's morals. It was added to restrain sin. But in Paul's argument, the law, why the law? It's not just given to us to restrain sin and all the crazy drivers out there. But the law was given, second, to reveal Christ. Not just sin, but the law was given to show us Jesus. Read with me in verses 22 through 24. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, 
in order that we might be justified by faith. Paul now points to the first function of the law. The law was given as a mirror so that as we would read in verse 23, we would read the law of God and we would be held captive under the law. We would see our sin and we would see our great need for Christ. Now, I want us to camp for a moment on this word guardian in verse 24. In what way is the law a guardian to you and I? Now, you might have a translation that says that the law was a schoolmaster or a tutor or a child conductor. It's actually a Greek word turned French, and we get the word pedagogy from it. So you teachers or students out there, you know that pedagogy is the method and the practice of teaching. So what, what is Paul really saying here? Paul argues here that the law, as you read it, the law of God was the method and the practice that God determined to use to teach you and I. To teach us what? Yes, about our sin, but to teach us about our need for Christ. So let me give you a couple examples from the Ten Commandments. How would God use this as a teaching or a pedagogy or a schoolmaster or a tutor? Well, let me grab a couple of these commandments. Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not have any idols. And if you're not familiar, idol basically is this idea of God is supposed to be at the center of my life. And when I replace God at the center with any finances, comfort, sex, my preferences, if anything is at the center of my life but God, that's an idol. So I read Exodus 20 verse 4 and I go, oh snap, okay, I, I got some idols at times. Exodus 20 verse 12. Honor your mother and father. Kids hate that verse. And you know what? I don't like it either. Because it's a command given to me. Whether or not mom and dad deserve it, I'm supposed to honor my parents. So I read that and I go, ooh, okay, let's find a different one. Exodus 20 verse 17. You shall not covet. And brothers and sisters, we are more influenced by the culture than we would like to admit. Because we're constantly dissatisfied and longing for something else. Whether it's a relationship or some material thing or our circumstances, we are constantly coveting. So, I read these. I, personally, I read these and I say, I've transgressed. I've, got, I've gone beyond the limit that God has set before me. I'm not able to keep these. I'm not able to fulfill them. And if I'm honest, in my natural mind, I don't even want them. I don't want these laws. And if you're here or you're watching online and you're considering Christianity, you're like, okay, I knew this kind of stuff would come up. Seriously? The Ten Commandments? This seems old-fashioned and restrictive. Because throughout the Old Testament, you will find 600 laws, commands, stipulations. It all seems very daunting and guilt-ridden. But it's only daunting and guilt-ridden. It only seems old-fashioned and restrictive if you stop there. 
The purpose of the law was not simply to give you a list of do's and don'ts and leave you in your guilt. But Paul says in Galatians 3, in our passage, that one of the purposes of the law is that we would read it and it would lead us to a revelation of our need of Jesus continually. Not just one time when I trust in him, but as a faithful follower, as I read his law, even in my devotions, I see the beauty of Christ. So here's an example. I heard this once from someone. If I right now held up a set of keys and I gave them a little jingle, would that excite you? Well, probably not. I mean, unless you're a weirdo. I mean, nothing that, that, that probably wouldn't get you excited. However, if you were locked in a deep, dark dungeon... Would the sound of keys excite you? Absolutely they would, because the sound of keys would be the sound of potential release, the sound of hope that I might get out of here. And so it is with Christ. He looks precious. When? Well, you know, think about the, even in in natural revelation, when do you see the beauty of the stars? It's against the backdrop of a dark sky. And it's against the dark black backdrop of our sin revealed in the reading of the law that we see the beauty of Christ. The law was given not so that you would stay there, but so that you would see darkness and see Christ for his beauty. Christ looks precious, the faithful followers, because we read the law and we say, who? Who can fulfill this? Who can uphold this? Jesus comes and says, I have not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law and its requirements on your behalf. I've come to show you good standing is available through me. Or as Paul says in verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came. Until he came. In order that we might be justified by faith. Faithful followers of Christ love the law of God because it restrains us from going beyond the boundaries of God's moral desire of our life and it graciously teaches us and reminds us of the beauty of Christ in the gospel. If you don't see Christ as precious, you probably need to read his law. Jesus lived a perfect law-abiding life on our behalf. He sacrificially died to pay for the laws that we broke. And he rose again, offering forgiveness and new life to those who would trust in him. And they would be enabled by the Spirit of God to live for him. Praise God for the law that teaches us and leads us to these glorious realities. But, okay, that then answers Paul why the law. But there's still a second question. Because the law seems to be pitted against promise. So the second question naturally is, What is the promise of grace? 
If the law is necessary because it shows me sin, it shows me Christ, well then what is the promise really? And we've addressed the promise of the gospel throughout the letter and even our passage already. The promise is being right with God through faith. We're saved by faith. We're changed by faith. Jesus' work, it's sufficient. It's enough. We don't need to add or subtract to it. I would like to draw out just quickly two important implications of the promise of the gospel that Paul makes clear to us in our text. And really, it's the bookends of our passage I want to focus, the beginning and the end. So look first in 15 through 18, this idea that blessing comes through the offspring. Uh, let's, let's read together in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, after the promise to Abraham, does not, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For, because if in the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So here in this passage... Paul is giving us an important lesson in understanding covenants and promises and how the whole Bible fits together in one narrative. We often fall into this trap of treating each of the 66 books of the Bible as a singular thought, an event, or a particular writing. This can lead us to thinking that the Old Testament is about God's anger and wrath and law and God's New Testament is about God's promises and Jesus and love. That is a fundamental misreading of the Bible. The whole scripture is a revelation of God's, what? Grace and promises that find their climax in the person of Jesus. So in verse 15, what is Paul giving an example of? He, he just says, to give a human example... Well, he's been arguing in chapter 3 that the Spirit, good standing, God's continued pleasure on you in your life, and the change you hope to see in your life, it all happens through faith. So Paul gives an example here of blessing through faith apart from the law, but in the Old Testament. So we introduced this concept about two weeks ago. Paul makes it explicit in verse 16. The fulfillment of Abraham's offspring. It wasn't Isaac. It's Jesus Christ. Think back to the promises of Genesis 12 and 15 for a second. God told Abraham that he would become a great nation. He would inherit the world. And through him would all the families of the earth be blessed. This was before the law ever came into existence. Paul says in verse 17, 
He made this promise, and then 430 years later, the law came. So before the law was this promise to bless the world through Abraham's offspring. Paul makes the point now that the promise to Abraham, it wouldn't be canceled, it wouldn't be made void because there was a law through Moses. Really, the law of Moses served way and gave way to the promises of Abraham. So let's put it this way. Paul is teaching that the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is centered on the promise of grace. So indulge me here for a second. Think of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve. God makes a promise of grace and restoration through an offspring. Okay, how about Genesis 9, Noah? God makes a promise of grace and restoration to Noah and his offspring to not destroy the earth. Okay, Genesis 12. Abraham, God promises what? Grace and restoration through Abraham's offspring. Okay, what about Exodus 20 and Moses? God promises what? Grace and restoration to those who can obey the law. And we see our need. 2 Samuel 7, David, God comes to him and promises what? Grace and restoration to the world through his throne, through a king that would come. So, brothers and sisters, when Jesus gets on the scene, he's the offspring of Eve. He's the son of Abraham. He's the better Moses who fulfilled the law. He is the true king of David who brings what? Grace and restoration to the entire world through faith. The whole Bible, including the law, points to the promises of God through faith. There is no divide. There is no tension between law and promise. All of it, all of it points to Christ. So that's, that's the promise. Blessing comes through the offspring, and I'm glad that's the case. But the promise of the gospel doesn't just explain how the whole Bible fits together and this idea of blessing through the offspring. At the end of our passage here, the promise of the gospel tells us of our adoption in oneness. Read with me, please, verses 25 through 29. But now that faith has come, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Oh, I love this passage. And here we come to the most glorious reality and the most misunderstood portion of our text. Let me first explain what Paul is not saying before I explain what he is saying. Here's what he's not saying, specifically in verse 28. He's not saying there is no such thing as Jew 
and Greek. He's not saying that there are no ethnicities. God is not colorblind. And let me encourage us not to talk, think, or speak in categories like this. There is no colorblindness in the Bible. The diversity of Acts, or even throughout the rest of the Old and New Testament, makes clear to us that we're all different. Different in temperament, different in ethnicity. I've had a couple of you ask me what my ethnicity is. I think it's my big nose. But, yeah, there are differences in temperament, in ethnicity, in socioeconomic status. There's differences in preference. There's certainly differences in driving ability. Paul is not saying there are no differences in the body of Christ. He's also not saying that there is no difference in the function and the life that God gives you, enslave or free. He's not suggesting you go to your employer tomorrow and tell them you need a raise because there's no difference between you and him. I mean, and maybe you need a raise, but you can't use that verse to argue for it. Paul is not arguing that everyone has the same kind of life or even the same privileges or luxuries or the same trials. Now, you and I in much of our culture may agree with those first two, but it's this third one that's a hot-button issue in our climate today. Paul is not saying that there is no such thing as gender. Throughout the Scripture, Old and New Testament, there are commands, responsibilities, and directives given to just men and just women. Paul's not arguing that gender is a social construct. He's not saying men and women are biologically the same or that they even function in the same way. He's also, he's also clearly not saying that men or women are better or more important than the other. It's so easy for us to read this with our 21st century Western American eyes and miss something far greater that Paul is pointing to. What is he pointing to in this passage? What does all of this mean in the context of his argument in this letter? What is he getting on about here? What does he want these Galatian churches to really know and understand? Well, look again at the end of verse 28 and 29. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Wow. So you're all one in Christ. You're all children of Abraham. You are all partakers of the promises of God. Really what Paul is saying is this. I don't care if you're a Jew, a Greek, a black, a white, an Asian, a Spanish, a Native American, or you're Irish. As long as you're not a Packers fan, you're all equal in Christ. Big game today, I hear. Paul's saying, I don't care if you are a slave or a freeman, a blue-collar worker or a white-collar broker, a stay-at-home mom and dad, a CEO, a pastor, a volunteer, a drive through worker, or a grandpa. You're all the same. You're one in Christ. Paul's saying, I don't care if you're a man, a woman, a child, if you're old, if you're a teenager, or if you're an overly opinionated nine-year-old. You're all one in Christ. 
The gospel restores broken people to God. And the gospel restores broken people to one another. Because we're one. We're a family. What's the backdrop of this letter? A great divide in the people of God. That's not just at the backdrop of our letter. That's at the backdrop of our culture and community and maybe some of us. A great divide. People separating themselves from one another. People adding to the gospel. People seeking hope outside their identity of Jesus. People being more loyal to their tribe than they are being a faithful follower of Christ. Paul comes in and he says, all of you, you're all sons. You're all heirs. You've been immersed in Christ. You've put Christ on. As Paul says in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What a glorious reality. So we get to that point where we ask, okay, well, what do we do with this? If the law, why the law? If the law was given to me to reveal my sin and to show me Christ, if the promises of God really are how the whole Bible is put together, and if the promises of God mean that we're all the same and equal in Christ, well, what do I do tomorrow? You know tomorrow's Monday, right? Well, when Monday hits, it's back to work and school and messy relationships and difficult trials and circumstances. So what do I do tomorrow? Well, uh, brothers and sisters, I'd like to suggest two things that you and I can take with us this week. The first is love God. By loving the law. Now, don't get it twisted. The law of God doesn't change us. It doesn't make us right with God. And that's where the legalists and even these Galatian churches were getting it wrong. Jesus, he fulfilled the law on my behalf. Why then the law? Because, yes, again, it shows me my sin, my need for Christ. It restrains me from going beyond God's moral limit for my life. It guides me as a faithful follower of Christ. Don't, don't disconnect God and his character from his word, from his law. So this week, as you, as you attempt, as we all attempt to read our Bibles, to get in his word, not to check a box, not to download information like the Matrix, but we read even his laws and his commands to see him, to know him, and to be reminded of his grace. Love God by loving his law. But second, love God by loving the body. Do that this week. Love God by loving the body. If, according to Paul, if we are one in Christ, then you have never met anyone that you're better than. If we are one in Christ, you have never met anyone you are better than. 
C.S. Lewis once wrote this way. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. I love that. This is especially true for faithful followers of Christ. The person next to you in your family, the crazy driver behind you on 210, the co-worker you don't like, the church member you think poorly of, the neighbor you neglect to connect with and serve, the person who is radically different than you in temperament, preference, maybe even philosophy, they are all made in the image of God. They're all eternally valuable. And they're all exactly who the Lord has placed in front of you. No accident, no coincidence, it's divine appointment. There is a sharp spirit of criticism in our culture, in our spirits, maybe even at times in our church. May God help us to look at our brothers and sisters in Christ as one, as equals. If we are one, well, let us put aside our external differences and love and serve one another. That will put Christ on display. That will impact our families and our community. That is what the people of God are called to do, to be the church. Can you imagine what that would look like if you and I were convinced not in some cute academic way, but I mean like, you know, in here, if we were just convinced that our brothers and sisters were one in Christ, that people would come in and they would see us unified on the gospel. Well, that, that would be something to see. And by God's grace, do you know that he's doing that here? By God's grace, do you know that he's shaping in each and one of us a spirit of oneness and togetherness? Jesus changes things, and we're evidence of it. So God help us press into it this week. Jesus is enough because his law teaches and because his promises restore. They restore us to him. May restore us to one another. Praise God. Pray with me. Father, this is what we pray. We pray for restoration. As we even sang earlier, Father, we all come here broken, dealing with something, circumstances that may lay ahead this week, even the holiday season themselves, Lord, as uh, Dan prayed, they, they often are a reminder of pain and hurt to many of us. So we pray that your law would teach us, that your promises would restore us, that we truly would be a people that look at each other as brothers and sisters, that we would rejoice in our differences that we would rejoice in the lives that we've been given, 
that we would rejoice that by your spirit we are intimately connected together in Christ. Father, I pray that this week Jesus would be enough. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.